Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast brought to you from the editorial team of the award-winning Holyrood magazine. Whether you're more interested in what politicians do to relax than what they actually do in the parliament, this is the podcast where you'll get the full skinny on politics, policy and pure nonsense. Join me, Mandy Rhodes, editor of Holyrood, along with Liam Kirkcaldy, one of my award-winning writers, along with the odd politician as we chew the political fat and spit it out onto the page of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood magazine. I, I did actually, I, I dyed myself once using food colouring. Um, that was 35p a bottle. It takes three bottles to, to soak a human body, or my size of human body anyway. So it's a lot cheaper than an aeroplane. Therefore, they're really wanting things to get back to a lot more normality. And when you have an education secretary and a trade union leader almost announcing that part-time learning, I mean, we're talking one, two days a week in school might continue for 12 months. It's just, none of it has felt very thought out, really. Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we chart the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I have a few different options this time. Um, oh, for good. For good week, good yeah, week. a couple of good weeks. I mean, I don't know how, how good they really are, but... The it's first one, the changes. Yes, well, the first idea is that it's a very good week for whoever is getting to paint Boris Johnson's aeroplane. That's following the news that there's going to be £900,000 to repaint a plane in the colour of the Union Jack, or the colours, I should say. You've got time. It seems like I think I could actually do a pretty good job of it. I painted my living room before. Um, (laughs) I think you also painted yourself once. I I did actually. I I dyed myself once using food colouring. That was 35p a bottle. It takes three bottles to to soak a human body, or my size of human body anyway. So it's a lot cheaper than an aeroplane. No, but can can anyone fly you? Well, we didn't try. It was a night out. <laughs> the problem was it, it doesn't come I mean, up actually, very quickly. Actually, Liam, there is a song, I'm Mandy, Fly Me. <laughs> that's true. Do you want to sing it? <laughs> Tell you what, no one's painting a Union Jack on me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I mean, I think a, a million pounds nearly to paint a military plane in the colours of the Union Jack. I know, I know. I'd have done it for 850 grand. I would maybe go for a sort of pish green or a beige. Well, the other thing is you've got the question. I mean, I think it was grey before. And if you think that's yeah. not bad for the sky, you know, it's going to be a bit blue or a bit grey. What's he going to camouflage against? Uh, is Boris Johnson I mean, going to be flying over Union Jacks permanently? <laughs> yeah, it's not very well disguised in the air, is it? Oh. Um, I think I prefer it was because David Cameron actually had the plane undergo a ten million pound refit. Mm. Um, so I think I prefer Gordon Brown's approach, who just cancelled Tony Blair's plane order on the basis <laughs> <laughs> the good Scotsman there on the basis that we couldn't afford it and there were cheap airlines and that was fine for everybody. So it does seem reasonable, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. So that's my first idea anyway. Yeah. Um, my second one is that it's a very good week for footballers, or specifically for Marcus Rashford, the um, yeah. Manchester United and England striker, after he forced the UK government into a U-turn and it was, well, it was forced to extend preschool meal schemes over the summer. So basically that means that about 1.3 million children are now going to be able to get fed over the summer. It also meant that there was headlines could say number 10 gets it right for once because, of course, he's got a number 10 on the back of his shirt. <laughs> You've been researching. I, <laughs> I know that you're a huge football, football fan, I know that, but you never talk about it, do you? Your love of football. I think the really lovely thing about this is, it, you know, not only is Marcus, Marcus is just a really genuinely nice person, it seems, but he has 
all of this was rooted in his lived experience um, mm-hmm. of having a single parent mom who looked after her kids as well as she could. But he has talked about the fact that he would go hungry. Mm. And uh, so he knows the importance of those uh, free school meals and how, and basically Boris Johnson had to listen to that. But I think it also shone a light on the lack of social or at least emotional intelligence mm-hmm. of Boris Johnson and his team because it, it opened up a whole load of commentary apart from anything else about why do poor people choose to have more children when they can't afford them. But also you had Boris Johnson saying that he hadn't heard about uh, Marx's campaign until Mm -hmm. the day that he decided to change his mind on school meals. And that was clearly not true. Yeah, I note that you're referring to him as uh, Marcus Rashford there. Is that that definitely (laughs) right? What you mean? Because Matt Hancock called him (laughs) Daniel Rashford, some kind of Harry Potter mix-up. Marcus Radcliffe, is it? I'm not not sure. I mean, oh, but yeah, I thought you'd him Daniel Rashford. It was Daniel Rashford. I'm not going to call him Marcus Radcliffe. <laughs> You're as bad as uh, Dominic. That's right. Dominic yeah. <laughs> so, shall we talk about Dominic Rab? Uh, yeah. Well, Dominic Rab is actually one of my bad weeks. Um, ah, right. he's, he's where we come in here. He had a kind of similar mix-up, I suppose, in a sense. Um, Dominic Rab went on TV and said he didn't understand the concept of uh, taking the knee, which is obviously the, the kind of most common site around the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, yeah. Started with Colin Kaepernick in the US. And I, I don't suppose he necessarily expect him to understand the full history of the thing, but he, instead of saying he didn't understand the history, he said it seemed to come from Game of Thrones, which is, of <laughs> course, the Game of Thrones reference to bending the knee or showing fealty. And he yeah. said it all seemed quite subservient. I'm not sure how much he's followed the Black Lives Matter protests, to be honest. No. And and then he made things worse, I think, during that interview, because he then said um, that he, he had bent the knee himself when he proposed to his wife, although she might deny that. And maybe it was because they drunk too much champagne. Yeah. And I just feel, you know, at a time like this, perhaps we shouldn't be even talking about drinking loads of champagne. I would have said Cava if that was him. That's what I'd have done if I was a spin doctor. No <laughs> That's why you're not. No I one's suspect. ever employed me as a spin doctor. It's worth adding. Uh, I've never worked in that job. Hello. So I think all in all, a good week for a particular footballer. Yes. Um, That's right. Which yeah. probably and loosely takes us into uh, another bad week, I think. And that was that was the, the scenes that we witnessed in George Square in Glasgow, mm. um, where basically a peaceful demonstration against the eviction of asylum seekers was attacked. They were attacked by a group of thugs purporting to be loyalists, rangers supporters, people that claimed to be defending statues, mm-hmm. but basically white men, thugs. And yeah. I think the thing that annoyed me as well, apart from the seeing the scenes, um, <laughs> particularly in the context of the whole Black Lives Matters and how Scotland perhaps purports to see itself, was that things like the BBC reported this as two rival groups clashing. Yeah, yeah. You know, which implies that there was some ideological standpoint for the violence inflicted by a mob of white men attacking people that had already left their own country out of fear of attack. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's always going to be sort of question marks over people holding protests at the moment. Um, just yeah. because of the, the pandemic. But there is a, there's a clear urgency to that protest because asylums, people seeking asylum in, in Scotland and refugees are being put at risk by COVID. So you can't really wait. You know, there's already been a death from yeah. unsuitable accommodation, or that's the, that's the claim anyway. Um, 
And instead of backing that or just ignoring it, you've got a bunch of, I mean, they are just, they're racist, really. And you're right yeah. to connect it to football, but the underlying problem here is racism. Um, yeah, well, I think the First Minister summed up. She said um, it was not people protecting statues. It was a bunch of racist thugs seeking to um, live out their vile prejudice against asylum seekers and refugees. It's not what Scotland is about. Yeah. Uh, I think I think my problem with that statement is it, it is sadly what some parts of Scotland are about. And we're kidding ourselves if we believe that intolerance does not exist in Scotland. Yeah, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a new thing, I suppose. There's never been a case where a protest has been attacked by the by the far right in those circumstances before. So I suppose that's more worrying. Um, mm. In better news, there was actually new polling today that suggests that um, 74% of Scots say refugees should be made to feel welcome in the country. In fact, the, the kind of headline bit of it was 73% of Scots think that people seeking asylum should be allowed to work. So actually, overall, Scotland probably is a pretty tolerant country, a pretty welcoming country. But if the minority is are, are violent racists, then you've got a real problem. Yeah. I think, you know, as you say, everybody's getting a little bit mixed up about what they're protesting about or what they're revolting against a protest. And, you know, the Scottish Police Federation got themselves into a bit of bother as well, because they then said that um, both sides were as guilty as each other in this. Mm -hmm. But I think what they meant by that was that they're trying to police a COVID situation at the moment. So having protests at the moment during a time of lockdown is really difficult anyway, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a tension there. I think there's always a tension among demonstrators when they do decide to, to break the law or to break guidelines. Um, there's also a strong argument that that's how things change, you know? Most successful yeah. protests have involved a degree of unlawfulness. So. Yeah. And as I say, they can't really wait. There's no point waiting until COVID's over and saying, okay, what can we do about the effect of COVID on refugees? No. So we're talking shortly after a parliamentary debate on the next steps in easing lockdown. Mandy, that was kind of the, the scenes yesterday between Nicola Sturgeon and Jackson Carla were probably some of the most heated we've seen between them in a while. Um, it went, Nicola Sturgeon did respond um, to, to some questions from Jackson Carla. He seemed to suggest that, he, that she was lacking ambition in her plan, which I think is probably yeah. not how she sees it. It's difficult. Um, I mean, I, I think the attacks from Jackson Carla at the moment would almost have you believe that Nicola Sturgeon's cunningly trying to kill people off while she's actually trying to protect them. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess she is in a bit of a no-win situation <laughs> because particularly on education, we've got a real problem here with kids not being able to go to school. There seemed to be quite a lot of um, certainly not clarity about what the education secretary felt could happen and what she felt could happen and what parents think could happen. And there's an issue for me, I suppose, in this that I think people have been doing things before government. And certainly as we went into lockdown, parents were already taking their children out of school because they were worried about the risks. And now they're, they're really wanting things to get back to a lot more normality. And when you have an education secretary and a trade union leader almost announcing that part-time learning, I and mean, we're talking one, two days a week in school might continue for 12 months. Um, it, 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 that's not going to help parents. It's not going to help business. Um, it's just none of it has felt very thought out, really. Yeah. I mean, yesterday in the chamber, there was kind of, I think it was Richard Leonard actually was um, demanding more information on the plan. And Nicola Sturgeon essentially had to respond and say, well, listen, we're still making the plan. That's why I'm not giving you 
a massive update on this is because it doesn't currently exist in a, in a, yeah. you know, in a publishing I mean, way. we're going to hear an interview I did with um, Jack McConnell, Lord McConnell, uh, was a former First Minister of Scotland, also a former maths teacher, also a former council leader. And Jack has shown, I would say, a level of impatience about what's going on. Um, and what he really felt and said to me was that he just felt there was a lack of ambition, that almost government council leaders uh, and to some extent the trade union he's very careful not to criticize teachers almost in the same way that we never criticize anybody that works within the nhs um a lack of ambition to actually get things done and he he feels that the plan a um was almost the plan b and the plan a should always have been how do we get kids back to school full-time or certainly into full-time learning uh, which could take place anywhere and that doesn't seem to have been the first priority. The first priority has almost been how do we go towards blended learning uh, with some online, some not, some in classrooms, some not. And I, I just think people have been left not knowing what the rules are at all. Mm. Are we going to cut to that now? Yes, I think so. So, Jack McConnell, as a former First Minister, former Education Minister, former Council Leader, and as a former Maths teacher, what was your first response to schools being completely locked down? Well, I think it became inevitable when parents started holding their kids back from school. It wasn't... Um, the first absences were not after lockdown was announced. Uh, in the fortnight before that, many parents were voluntarily withdrawing their kids from school as the situation became unclear and, and they became more nervous. So the lockdown was inevitable. It was almost certainly the right thing to do at, at the time. Uh, and I think the challenge has been, obviously, those teachers that have been working have worked incredibly hard, but it is simply not possible at that kind of notice to provide the sort of homeschooling particularly for really disadvantaged families, uh, that uh, that would have had anything like the impact of, of, of normal school life. Do you understand that for the government in trying to deal with a pandemic and a, and a virus that they didn't understand, that there was almost, I guess, a, pa a panic and a priority that everything went into health and education became less of a priority? Well, everything went... Almost everything went into health in, in Scotland. Uh, uh, at the UK level, everything went into health and jobs. Um, and, you know, I think, I mean, that's absolutely the right approach at the time. Uh, I think the, the efforts, whatever people think of individual decisions that were made and whatever comes up afterwards in inquiries, the actual effort and the mobilisation of people and money and equipment and facilities in late March, early April, was, uh, was phenomenal, you know, and, and that needed determination, it needed leadership, it needed all hands on deck. And, uh, you know, I think that was right for that moment. What I can't understand is why in the 10 weeks that followed, nobody thought we should be doing this for education in June. Um, they had more time to plan, more time to, to, to to spark off that mobilisation. A lot of it could have been done during the period of the lockdown. Uh, and I, you know, that's the thing that's, I suppose, disappointed me most about this is 
when I first heard about four weeks ago that uh, school, the, the plan in most schools was anything from two days every three weeks to, you know, two days a week, sort of 40%. Um, I actually thought that was the contingency plan. I thought, oh, that's, you know, obviously there's a lot of work going on here for what might happen if there's a second spike in the autumn. Um, it only, it, then it became clear that that was actually the plan for August. Um, and and of course, of course, as the debate has kicked off over the last fortnight and more and more information has come to light, the lack of planning and the lack of joined up thinking has just become more and more obvious. I hope it's not too late to sort this out. So, so basically, you thought their plan B, <laughs> that actually was their plan A. The plan A well, should have been. I, 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 I thought their plan A was was actually the plan B. If yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was told by teachers in May that they were that they were hearing that this was what was this is late May. They were hearing what this is what was going to happen after the summer term. I thought, well, I, you know, that's that's contingency planning. You know, that's probably um, it's not great, but it's you know it's probably pretty sensible. And then it became clear that it was actually. The number one option it was plan a um, yeah. and, and and that it wasn't even starting in june i mean for, for example I, sp- I spoke to a parent in holland last night and she told me about the system that's operated there where basically and if you think about where they are and where we are their may is probably our june in terms of the virus and in may they started easing primary school children back into the classroom in smaller groups and notice they tested it out, then they expanded it a little bit more for a few more days, and then they went back to full time. Now, we could have had two, two or three weeks of that in June to test everything out and been ready then just to go straight in in August. And, uh, I mean, oh, but that's done now. You can't, you, know, you can't go back to that because that's not happened. What, what, what needs to happen now is all hands on deck. Um, uh, and, and this is at the management level. This is in the local authorities and the Scottish government and the education bodies and um, and I'm sure you know promoted staff in schools would do their bit as well. But getting get getting all hands in debt over the course of the summer to make this happen is, a, is essential. We can't just sit around till August and wait and see what the situation is like. You need to have option one, plan A, full-time education on the 11th of August. Option two, plan B, if we're not quite ready for that, or there's a spike in the virus, or there's some other problem happening at a local level, then bring in the part-time education for a wee while to see if, to, to see until the situation betters. So, so what was that about? I mean, that it's a lack of ambition in thinking that your priority has to be let's get back to full-time education as quickly as possible, and wherever possible. Can't quite work it out. Um, I, you know, I think somebody went to sleep. Um, maybe more who? Than one. Who do you think went to sleep? But I don't see. It's not helpful if I start blaming people. Um, you know what I've tried to do in the last two weeks is use my experience, which I hope counts for something. Um, Twenty years ago, I was brought in to sort out the mess in the Scottish exams, um, and we got it fixed with all hands on deck um, over the course of the year that followed. Um, so I hope I've got some credibility in this in terms of knowing the system knowing what's required and what its what its potential is um but i don't I, but i want to use that profile um, and experience to try and help the situation rather than just 
blame somebody. So I've been very, very, very careful not to, you know, name and start blaming people and, 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 and going back over what's happened. What I'm interested in is this week, next week, can the right decisions be made? Can we start the mobilisation? If the Scottish Government does that properly, can the councils move into action right now to follow that through? And I hear rumours in councils, um, one very strong rumour I've seen on a bit of paper actually, that there are councils that have already started to move in anticipation of the Scottish Government moving on this. So I think, you know, there, there are rumblings in the system. And, I, I, you know, people, people know they've got a few weeks to get this done. Um, but I don't think it helps if I start pointing fingers at this stage. I think the key thing is is to get the decisions changed. And if, they, if the decisions are changed and the right things are done, I'll be the first one to congratulate those that do it. I think a couple of things then. I mean, OK, I get your point about not wanting to blame individuals, but it seems to me it's a combination of things. It's central government, local government, also the trade unions. And, and people, in the same way as they don't with the NHS, never want to blame the teachers. But is there a whole combination of things that has stopped a kind of level of mobilisation that we saw when it came to things like the Louisa Jordan being built? Well, there seems to be a whole combination of different things and different decisions at different levels. You have to start at the top. Um, if I just go back 20 years and, and the SQA and the examinations that collapsed back then, the first decision had to be, will we run a full cohort of exams next August? Um, and will we then will we move heaven and earth to make sure those exams are a success? People get the right results delivered to the right homes. Um, and once you've made that decision, then everything else starts to put, starts to work from there. And if you know staff need to show flexibility, or new management needs to come in, or we need to buy equipment, or you know you need to use new facilities, or you need to alter the dates here and there, or whatever, then all of that then flows from that first decision. And obviously you need to involve, for example, the local authorities and the teacher unions and other bodies in those in, in, in that initial decision. But then you have to be very firm and clear that that is your intention. And if, they, if it was said right now that the intention is, unless there is a massive spike in this virus and it is totally unsafe for children just to leave the home, the intention is for homeschooling to stop in mid-August and for children, if they're doing online teaching, for that to happen in an organised environment and a facility with adults, teachers or other people qualified uh, or, or, or certified to be able to be with them. Um, and that there will be classroom teaching on a rota basis in, in the actual classrooms um, for those that can be spaced properly. And that is not beyond the wit of the Scottish education system. And do you think there's been a rigidity in a way that um, schooling has, has kind of been interpreted as has to be in a classroom, homeschooling has to be at home, when in fact we're, we are innovative people, we could think very differently and that just doesn't seem to have happened. I mean, that's the sort of thing that just astonishes me. I mean, why, why did nobody think it would be a good idea to keep on the newly qualified teachers who've just finished their probation year for August when it seems as if dozens and dozens of them, maybe hundreds, are being discarded by the local authorities all, all over the country um, at, this, at this crucial moment. Why did nobody think uh, what other buildings can be used, what other people can be used? Um, I don't understand why that, why that 
thought process was not developed. Um, and I think, you know, we need to look back to the health service. People came on board. Uh, people moved from normal jobs into the emergency wards. Students in training, whether it was for nurses or medics, uh, came in and did their bit, even if it was a, you know, what might be regarded as a kind of lower level job than they, they're, they're training to do. They came in, got their sleeves rolled up and got involved. And, and you know, we all know dozens and dozens of people who've done that. And I think for anybody to say that that is not possible in education is insulting all those folk in the health service who did it three months ago. It's just not right and it's just not fair. If we can do it in health, we can do it in education. The other thing that you mentioned at the beginning there was that parents had already started to take their children out of schools before government acted. And in a way, that is happening again. It's parents that are saying, we want our children back in and government are having to follow parents. That feels like a lack of leadership. Well, somebody, somebody somewhere hasn't quite clicked where the parents were on this and, and, and what life was like, um, you know, for the majority of parents over the last, uh, the last three months. I think, I don't know what's, I, I genuinely don't know why there's been this level, this lack of ambition and, and complacency. Um, uh, you know, maybe there have been huge arguments behind the scenes about finance, but I haven't heard a council leader anywhere in Scotland say you know, that they would do this if they got more money from the Scottish Government. Um, maybe there were arguments happening between the various bodies that look after education at a national level or represent children. But until this week, nobody was speaking out on behalf of those children to say they need to get back to school. Um, and you know, maybe parents' bodies were consulted but I don't, if they were, they don't think they were in touch with the parents that they're representing. So, um, you know, I think, I think everybody who's been involved here, you know, has missed, missed what I think the vision and the ambition should have been. And therefore they all have a responsibility to help make sure that the situation can be turned around. All of them. The First Minister's talked about listening to anybody in this crisis. Now, with all your background, uh, not least being a former First Minister, has anyone asked for your advice? <laughs> no. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm giving it now. So, <laughs> and I don't think. Send her a message. I think, I, think, I, think, I think they could probably hear it. Um, but. I mean, what should have, you know, the, the, the way to deal with this is not to take people away from health or, you know, the, 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 a UK level in the job retention scheme that's been so important for saving jobs. Um, the way to deal with this um, is, is to say that, you know, to make a clear decision and then tell those responsible to get on with that. Um, and, you know, I can think of various moments in the past where, you know, as if I was, when I was First Minister, where there was, you know, a lot of pressure in one particular area where we had we had something to get finished or, or decisions to make, and something else was coming up on the horizon. And in that situation, you know, I always expected the individual minister in my cabinet to to be preparing for that properly. Um, and I think that's what's needed here is that people need to take responsibility. Uh, and anyway, I've said what I've said on this. I think I think this can all be done. Um, there have been offers all over Scotland of public and private facilities. There are organisations that work with children and young people all the time who have many people who are, who are registered with the appropriate disclosure um, certification. 
who have volunteered and, and said they're willing to come forward and help. There's been creative ideas, uh, like one I read the other day, which is why not use all those arts and cultural staff from the theatres that are closed just now to do things. Uh, you know, if we get started in August, the weather might still be good enough to use some open spaces as well. Um, all of the online, even if the online teaching is brilliant, even if it's, you know, can be done in the house with a parent um, with great ease and simplicity. Um, and, and, and every child in the country has the best equipment at home that they can possibly have. It's still better for them to do that with their pals and to go into another facility and sit down two metres away from their friends and, and do it there with an adult who's not in from the home supervising them. And that's just for all the kids that are living in relatively comfortable households. But there are, you know, hundreds, thousands of kids in Scotland who live in households where that is just not possible. And, you know, the impact, the impact on them, you know, is horrific. And we are going to pay a price for this as a society if we don't get them back into school and give them a catch-up programme that helps them get back on their feet before Christmas. And, and do you feel that we can catch up? Or are there still going to be long-term consequences? Of course we can. Um, you know, we can, we can get this back on track. Um, we can't get it back on track if we drift for six months. But if we act for six weeks, then we can get this back on track. Of course we can. If the resources in the, in the world and the leadership and the, you know, and the, and the flexibility are there, then, then we can get it back on track. I mean, the other issue for me, Jack, is I mean, we, we were talking and, you know, I, I'm running a business and I've got half my staff uh, have children. And in fact, a number of them asked to be furloughed so that they could deal with um, the schools closing. I've now got them saying to me, they don't know how they'll manage over the summer, so they don't know if they can get back to work. So I'm a bit surprised that we've got an education secretary who used to be a finance secretary, not connecting the dots between the economy and education. Well, I heard the um, economic secretary or business secretary, whatever uh, the, the title is now, um, on, uh, from the Scottish Government on the, on, on the radio the other morning talking about the unemployment figures and her single sort of demand for action on this or suggestion for how to deal with this um, was for the UK government to keep the job retention scheme going so that people could stay at home away from their work for longer and that just again that just seems to me to be to be daft they, you, what you need is for people to be paid to be working with the kids so the kids can go to a school-like environment and then parents can go back to work. Is that not a much better way of spending the money? Why spend the money on the parents' wages to stay at home and struggle with their kids' education when you could be paying people to teach the kids or, or supervise the kids doing their online learning in a school-like environment? I just, I just don't the fact that the, the dots are not being joined. And, you know, and I've had letters, I had a letter from a parent, I, would, I mean, I've had dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds almost, of, of messages and, and emails and things over the last two weeks, in fact, over the last 10 days. And I um, I had one from a, um, a parent, he, he lost his job at the beginning of lockdown, not necessarily linked to the pandemic, maybe linked to problems the company was having or whatever. Um, but he's now, he's now unemployed and he's looking for a job as we come out of lockdown. And as he said to me, I, there is no chance that I am going to be able to uh, persuade an employer to take me on 
if I say to them, you know, if you take me on, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stay at home for, you know, half the week for the next few months to homeschool my kid. So he, his prospects are zero. He is already unemployed. He's not on furlough or job retention. He's already unemployed. He wants to go back to work, but he he cannot get through a job interview without asking for time off. And that that job is just not going to happen for him. And he's not alone. You know, I've had so many. I mean, the letters are painful. The emails I'm receiving are painful. Um, and I, I I really hope that people. Ministers are listening. This is life. This is real life for people. It's not those of us in positions of responsibility and influence and so on. You know, we live pretty good lives. We've got you know good solid income. Most of the ministers in the cabinet have been ministers now for over a decade. You know, they've got good income, good lives, um, lots of support around them, staff, cars, technology. Um, you know, people's lives are not like that. And, and and I think I hope I hope that is getting through this week. I really do hope it's getting through. Are you suggesting that ministers perhaps forget what it's like to live a real life? I think when you're in government for a long time, you do get a little bit divorced. You know, I think that's partly one of the reasons that governments change. You know, and and and, and, and public opinion and moods change. Um, I think it's. I, I, I think, but I do. I do think a lot. I think politicians. Now, I mean, they were always a little bit out of touch <laughs> at times, um, you know, and could make mistakes uh, um, and led, led, you know, reasonably kind of uh, privileged lives. Um, but I think be- being a politician, the number of staff that politicians have, the backup they have, um, the relative conditions compared to other people in society, I think, you know, I think this is a difficulty in our political system. This is not just a problem with, you know, a few ministers in Edinburgh. Is, I'm not. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody in particular here. This is this is a problem in our political system. Um, uh, we are. Uh, I think politicians have become more divorced from the public than they have ever been before, um, and sometimes it shows. Well, on this, you of course have almost gone back to your roots because you started posing maths questions on social media. Was that just? You felt you had to do something. <laughs> well, I was—I mean, it was probably—it um, was mostly, you know, for a bit of fun. I was conscious that even that there were people who were at home and, um, you know, maybe not with a family, maybe on their own or um, looking after elderly parents or whatever they were—they were trying to cope with. And my homeschool maths challenge was a bit of a light relief that took off one day, and there was lots of interest in it. Um, and then it became clear that actually people who were homeschooling were quite enjoying it as well, because it was a moment for the family to, to stop the individual lessons and all get together and try and solve the puzzle. Um, so I had so much good feedback that I, I managed to keep it going for about three or four weeks, but um, as, as, as my work got busier again, it became more difficult to, to maintain it, but I did enjoy it while it was happening. I actually got messages from um, very senior member of the government of Sweden who was doing it every day right. <laughs> <laughs> with her family um, uh, from colleagues at the United Nations in, America, in New York <laughs> there were people in Africa there were people all over the people all over the world uh, enjoying it as well as as well as folk here in Scotland was anybody feeling really miserable do you think oh yeah there were definitely people who were struggling there were there were a few regulars who 
you know, would would kind of message me at midnight and um, telling me just what a rotten day they'd had trying to solve the puzzle. <laughs> um, but I think I think they were secretly enjoying it, and maybe I bought the wine as well. And if you had the choice, if you had the choice now, what would you prefer to be first minister dealing with a pandemic or be a maths teacher? Oh, always to be first minister. But I don't. Um, uh, you know, I don't envy the situation that the First Minister... I actually don't envy the situation the Prime Minister's been in either. I know it's easy to take... for people to take pot shots and, you know, there will be lots of things afterwards that inquiries find were not done properly. Um, but I don't envy them the situation that they have been in. The, uh, there were certain things that perhaps could have been prepared for. There were certain things, you know, which had to be dealt with as they arose. The judgments about, for example, the timing of lockdown, to do it not just at the right time to combat the virus, but at the right moment when the public would adhere to it and accept it. I think that was a really difficult judgment, for example. Um, so I don't envy the situation that, that people have been in, the challenges that they've had over the last few months. And I, you know, that's why I've not been, well, lots of my colleagues, um, uh, in politics have been you know, very critical uh, of governments either at the UK level or at the the, uh, the Scottish level over recent weeks and I, I have not been involved in that until this education thing came along you know I, I felt I needed to, to come out and, and speak out yeah so uh, I'm interviewing Nicola tomorrow for a special issue of the magazine that we're putting together about 50 women at 50 it's her 50th birthday next month and I guess as a human being, when you look at what she's... Nicola and I were born 10 years apart in the same hospital. How, 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 how does that indicate what size of country? <laughs> you know, it's like Scotland in miniature. Uh, we were, born, were both, born, both born in Urban Central and 10 years apart. God, it's just degrees of separation, isn't it? And you've both been First Minister. And there's only been five First Ministers in 21 years and two of us. Um, who between us have now she's now done what eight years? Yeah. So between us, we've done about we've done almost twelve years between us, uh, and uh, out of that twenty-one, so the majority of those twenty-one years, two people have served in a position who were born in the same hospital ten years apart. It's amazing. <laughs> Do you know if it was the same midwife? Uh, oh, we'll never check that. Um, but was, That'd be interesting. I was, back, I was back in the hospital last year. My mum was in that hospital last year. Um, right. some rehabilitation care uh, and I spent quite a lot of time there last year visiting my mum uh, very regularly and thankfully she's now out uh, but um, it was, I mean obviously I, I don't remember it from all those years back but it was, it was quite <laughs> funny sitting there you know, reflecting on the fact that this was where I had been born and where Nicola had also been born yeah, I, I feel I now have to try and search to find out if there's a midwife that's in common. That's incredible. Um, but just in terms of w interviewing her tomorrow, and I'm I guess I'm conscious when I think about my age, I'm looking at her thinking, my God, the burden of what you're shouldering right now must just be extraordinary. W what, what would you ask her tomorrow? Well, at the moment, I would ask her to just make that one big decision in, in, in education. Um, to just set the system from top to bottom on a, on a course to to bring back full-time education in August and make sure that option's available. Um, what would I, I, I... What would I ask her otherwise? I, I always ask, whenever I speak to her, I ask her how she is. 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how good you are at it, um, and the way that you conduct yourself. And um, it doesn't matter what your experience is when you are at the desk where the buck stops. That is a unique pressure that very few people can really fully understand. And mm -hmm. um, I think if you've been there, you have a responsibility to empathise with that. And uh, yeah, so whenever we speak, I ask her how she is. Always. Do you not just keep asking her if she'll join the Labour Party? <laughs> no, we don't talk about, uh, party <laughs> politics. But we, well, we, we speak about Scotland and we speak about kids. I know she cares about kids, so... That's why, I, yeah. that's why I think ultimately she'll do the right thing on this education issue. So normally I've had something happen during the week that I just really, really want to rant about. And to be honest, Liam, this week has been quite calm, which is unusual. <laughs> but I'm... Tranquility. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going on. Too much drink or something. Mm. Um, but people haven't really annoyed me. But other people have talked to me about manners and etiquette and we've gone from a period of time over the last few weeks or last two months where we appear to have had a bit of kindness going on mm -hmm. um, because people don't know the rules they've perhaps been a little bit more cautious about how they act around other people but I think that's definitely starting to go already I mean my husband was out yesterday crossing the road and um, a woman on a bike, which happened not to be me actually, um, went straight through a red light, almost knocked the dog over yeah. and uh, my husband just said, you know, it was a red light. She got off her bike, <laughs> turned around and went back for him and just started shouting at him. Mm. Um, they're criticising her and similar things have happened in shops. I've had people walk in front of me um, you know, I hope we're not getting back to a point where people forget that there was a nice cooperative feeling mm -hmm. that we were all part of this and we all wanted to just get through it. Yeah, I mean, my feeling is that it's, it's often getting taken out on the absolute wrong people anyway. The last few times I've been in a supermarket, I've seen someone absolutely lose it at the checkout and just start shouting oh, really? at someone who's done absolutely nothing wrong, who's already exposed to risk. These are people yeah. who, I mean, God, I don't know what job they do, but they're not necessarily sitting in a checkout all day. So it's yeah. a really odd thing how suddenly someone can just become that rude to someone. The other one is patron think, cyclists, actually. Yeah. I wonder if, it, do you think people are just starting to lose patience a little bit and maybe, I don't know, getting a bit more defensive about things? I think it's I sometimes if people don't feel like they have a lot of control over what's happening in their life and they're anxious and they're nervous. Sometimes there yeah. is just a point where they think you are the focus of everything that's gone wrong to me. So you've got all these different anxieties and then someone at a checkout isn't wearing a mask. And so they, they just lose it and start absolutely screaming at them. And it's usually because they're an easy target as well, you know? Do you think that's what's wrong with Jackson Carlo at the moment? What, do, you, do you think someone shouted at him <laughs> in the supermarket? <laughs> he's just he's losing it and he's shouting at um, Nicola Sturgeon in the chamber. Maybe. Actually, I do think that there would be a market if you wanted to write a book on Mandy Rhodes's Guide to Etiquette. Because <laughs> like I'm a, so polite all the like time. Like an old Victorian thing, you know? Like oh, you, yeah. you tell everyone how to dress and how to walk, not to vape around them, <laughs> to stay away at supermarkets. I'd, I'd buy it. Do you think I'm just getting kind of old and curmudgeonly? I can't even say the word. You know, just I'm <laughs> impatient and stubborn, and I think people should be doing things the right way. 
I don't think so. I mean, if anything, you appear to have become more serene this week. <laughs> Only this week. Perhaps a politician yeah. should do something about that. I bet they will. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.